we have someone who yeah. has an unbelievable story for you. All right. Nigel joins us. Nigel, how are you? Morning, guys. How are we doing? Nigel, what story do you have that sounds totally unbelievable, unbelievable. but is 100% true? So I spent um, two and a half days digging my way out of a prison cell with a pair of blunt scissors, Shawshank Redemption style, to, um, to get away from my kidnappers. Yeah, are Ali's got her jaw dropped. Wow. No, right. I'm, I'm not joking at all. So, all right. So, number one, you said kidnappers and they put you in jail. Why were you in jail? How did that happen? Uh, I was a freelance photojournalist um, working in Somalia at the time and ran into an ambush four days into a seven-day trip and was obviously then held as a hostage um, uh, and and they wanted a, a ransom from the Australian government for me. So um, I guess it wasn't jail, but it was it was I was being held in a house. So, um, h- how long into this did you think, "Wow, I am in a lot of trouble here"? Uh, first day, I thought I was in a lot of trouble, but yeah. um, sort of things deteriorated over time. But um, after five months, things were, were were looking like it was going south fairly quickly, and um, made a decision with the colleague who I was with to um, to try and get out of the house, so hence, hence digging my way out of the bathroom window so the two of us could sort of um, run and, and try and get to safety, which um, looked like it was going to work for about 20 minutes until we were recaptured by the gang that had, um, that had obviously kidnapped us. Oh, my God. So, okay, so you're in there for five months and you think we cannot keep going on like this. You start digging your way out and generally between you and the other person were those Shawshank Redemption type jokes going on like well I, I don't think it was jokes but um, like we, were being <laughs> held, we, were, we were being held separately at that stage right um, okay so uh, the the lady that I was in there with had already had sort of two fake assassinations done on her and that was the oh, reason for God. us sort of making the decision to to try and, and get out and, and you know try and get someone to help us once we were out of the house so what was that moment like after two and a half uh, days of digging when you actually stepped through that window and you're on the other side of the wall? What was going through your mind? I, I, look, to be honest, Ali, I don't think there was a hell of a lot going through my mind. It, mm-hmm. was, um, it was sort of a bit like cotton wool, I think, that the whole throughout, you know, it was pretty surreal to be out of the, out of the house and away from our captors, but um, the realisation, you know, pretty much once I jumped down and hit the ground to have some young kid in Somali sort of scream. Um, so our, our head start that I thought we were going to have, of, you know, potentially a few minutes was literally five seconds. Oh, um, yeah. And then I, I guess, you know, panic and fear takes over and you're in a in a foreign country, not sure where exactly where we were, somewhere in the north of um of Mogadishu and um, you know basically the brain just sort of clicked into into flight mode and I just started running, running. and and ran for um, uh, the closest um, mosque that we could find. So you're free then for 20 minutes. That moment then when you realise that you're going back to where you came from, did they treat you horribly and even worse? Did they try to punish you for trying to escape? <laughs> Absolutely, uh, you know, when we were recaptured, I actually thought we were we were both going to be killed. Um, even after they'd, they'd recaptured us and, and put us in the car, I can remember looking at one of the, the young guys who, who scared the bejesus out of me, and he put his pistol in his mouth and then, you know, pretended to pull the trigger. Um, 
Japan, it was like, you know, that's probably the reality of what was going to happen. But um, we were driven around for a few hours and then taken to a house and interrogated. They wanted to know how we got out and who'd helped us. And, um, you know, it sounds stupid, but we were sort of apologizing too for our behavior of, of getting out of the house. Like, we, you know, sort of saying stuff like, we're so sorry we escaped. We didn't mean to. Um, You're just trying to look after yourself. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, you know, just trying to backpedal. And then uh, we were shackled, so I had chains. Both of us were, were chained around the ankles, um, so our sort of legs were chained together. Um, so I think I had about a foot between each leg. Um, and then the treatment from there went, um, you know, just That's went from, from bad to worse and we were put on a starvation diet, physically tortured, mentally tortured. The female that I was with, um, you know, was raped, um, uh, and that that sort of went on for uh, the next eleven months until we were finally freed. And how were you finally freed then, Nigel? Uh, finally freed after my family, um, with the help of uh, some you know amazing individuals within Australia, including Dick Smith and Bob Brown, and um, family members and friends. Um, pulled together a, a ransom of about US dollars to pay for the two of us to be released. Oh, my God. How are you now with all of this, Nigel? I mean, you're telling this in a matter-of-fact way and you, you were a photojournalist, you, this is what you're doing, but how are you now? I mean, do you still shut your eyes even at night and wake panicking or...? No, not at all. Look, I, um, yeah. I, did, I did a huge amount of work when I got home with, with psychologists and doctors and... Um, you know, I think uh, some of the things I, I guess from from my younger age of of um, having older siblings who used to, you know, give me a pizzle, pizzling here and there, <laughs> um, and growing up on the land. So I think I sort of had that strength in me. But um, I think also the realization of coming home and having gone through a trauma, and everyone goes through traumas in life, and some of us, you know, go through multiple traumas. But um, it was really the the decision that I had to make of. I can either move forward or I, I can have this consume me for, for, for you know, potentially years. Um, yeah. And for me, I was just excited, excited to be back with my family and my friends and wanted to get on with life and um, have, you know, in some ways been incredibly fortunate to to use that experience um, to my benefit. And, um, you know, I'm very lucky. I've written a book and I, I do public speaking, so I speak at conferences about... Um, Obviously, my experience, but but uh, talking about how people can can really embrace trauma and those sorts of things and, and take something good away from from a horrific experience. Well, Nigel, you have absolutely blown all of us away. When Max said, "Right, we've got this idea. We need to find people that have got stories that sound unbelievable, but a hundred percent true." I don't know if anyone can follow yours, mate. I mean, I'm looking at Shane Lowe. He was talking about the trauma of his car breaking down over the weekend. Um, Shane, you need to pick yourself up. And wow. Nigel, what an incredible story! Thank you so much for sharing it with us. That's all right. Thank you very much for having me, and I uh, hope you guys aren't sweltering there today and tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, mate, and bro. if you've got a story you're thinking, I must tell Ali, get onto mix1023.com.au if you have a story that uh, sounds unbelievable, but it's 100% true. We'd love to hear that. You cannot complain about the heat ever again, yeah. Shane. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to look at a nail file or something. Yeah, I don't feel bad about that, to be honest. Yeah.